Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. Yeah, prophecy, so prophecy I love, I'm fascinated by it, I've studied it and I've taught it. Uh, it's not my, my focus of my ministry. Um, I, I tend to focus on gospel issues um, in gracelifeministries.org. But prophecy is su- such a, a multifaceted thing. There's an endless study, isn't it? Uh, you can go on and on and on looking at every aspect, every symbol, uh, trying to put all the pieces together. It's such a fascinating subject. But uh, I'm probably not the best one to ask about the ten toes or who the little horn is or, or some of these other details of prophecy because uh, some of you have studied that and some of the speakers have studied that much more than I have. But there was a time where I, I really did have to uh, internalize these things and study them. When I was uh, studying for my doctoral degree at Dallas Theological Seminary, we had uh, comprehensive oral exams. And in the comprehensive oral exams, any question about Bible interpretation was fair game. And so I had to sit in a circle of my professors and answer any question about Bible interpretation. So I studied and crammed for months and months and months, from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, I've forgotten a lot of it since. And you know, when we sat there, I was loaded for bear, and that's a good thing, because one of the questions from one of my professors, who will remain nameless, was, can you tell us in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 2, verse 3, what are the three ribs in the bear's mouth? How many here know what the three ribs in the bear's mouth in Daniel 7.3 is? You think you know? Come and tell me afterwards. <laughs> you probably didn't even know there was a bear with ribs in his mouth in Daniel 3. You think you know? All right, you tell me later because I want to I know. I want to know. But my answer to them was, well, there's, a lot of, there's some discussion about this. And some think it's this, and some think it's that. Some think it's some of the the kings of Medo-Persian Empire. Uh, But in the end, we really don't know. And he nodded with satisfaction, because that really is the answer they wanted to hear. We really don't know. And sometimes we have to admit we really don't know some of these details of prophecies and visions and things like that. But there is very uh, some things that are very clear. We do need to be careful, I think, to not lose ourselves in the forest by looking at too closely at the tree and every twig on the tree, because we miss so much by the bigger view of the forest. We miss the larger spiritual landscape that God has and and the Bible reveals for us. And that is a story that the Bible has. It's a story about the kingdom. Um, You know, the Bible's made of many parts, like, like a forest, There are many books in the Bible, but what is it that we call it one book, we have one Bible, and yet we know that there's 66 books in it, and there are many things that make the Bible diverse. Not only does it have 66 books, it has over 40 authors. We don't know exactly how many, and there are different occupations of authors, everything from fig pickers to fishermen, uh, from kings to uh, shepherds uh, in the Bible. It was written over a period of 1,600 years. 
and uh, has all different kinds of literature in it, like prophecy, poetry, narrative, and history. And there are various themes in the Bible, like themes about judgment, themes about redemption, themes about uh, the nations and uh, the future, and then the moods, the moods of worship, the moods of anger and God's wrath, and so on. There are many things that make this book a diverse book, just like a forest would be full of many different elements. But on the other hand, we have to say it is one book. We call it the Bible. And there are some things that bring this book together. There's one canon or collection of books. God clearly identified and his people clearly recognized which books should belong in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and they collected them for us under one book and under one cover. And when we think about it, even though there are over 40 human authors, there's only one divine author, big A, right? And one practical goal to the Bible. In other words, there's one practical goal the Bible wants us to move towards as God's people. One, one way he wants us to live and uh, live in knowledge of him, which we'll talk about. And there's one story in the Bible. Isn't that amazing that a book with, with 66 components, written over 1,600 years by over 40 different people, would have one story? And somewhere that bear with three ribs in his mouth fits into that story. As any other book or any other detail of the Bible does. Thank you very much. So let's talk about that story. Now, if you're a parent or grandparent, you've seen this picture a million times. Okay, and you know, a story has certain elements, <clears throat> just like the Disney story, The Lion King. You know, it usually starts with a, a protagonist, a good guy, and things are going well in paradise. And all of a sudden, that, that is interrupted by a, an antagonist or a bad guy. In this case, it's, uh, it's Scar, who overthrows Mufasa, the king of the kingdom. And, um, and when he does, he now rules an evil kingdom that is suddenly bleak and dark and, and seemingly hopeless. But Mufasa had a son who comes and grows. As a baby, he grows up into an adult lion, and uh, he is able to confront Scar and, and defeat him and regain his jungle kingdom once again with the help of his talking baboon. You're so smart. What's the name of his talking baboon? See, she knows the, the ribs in the bear's mouth, but not the talking baboon. Anybody know the name of the talking baboon? Rafiki, yeah, Rafiki. Pumbaa's the warthog. Characters in the story, right? So the, the Lion King sets up his rule again in the jungle, and all is back to normal. The jungle is restored to him. So... The Bible, the, a story has certain elements. There's usually a protagonist and antagonist. There's usually a, a, a good beginning, and then there's conflict, and then that conflict is resolved. Isn't that true of our Bible as well, where we see one story? One story, and it's a kingdom story. It's a story of the kingdom of God that began in the Garden of Eden, an idyllic situation and setting where man, the first man, Adam, was set to rule, but he sinned against God and lost that rule. And his antagonist, the devil, 
usurped him or overthrew him and took that rule. But God promised to Adam and to Satan himself that Satan would be overthrown and crushed and the kingdom would come. And those, and those promises are reiterated throughout the scriptures to Abraham and his progeny and anticipated in King David, foreshadowed in King David as uh, the son of David. We find out in the New Testament, Jesus Christ comes and introduces himself as the king of Israel but he is rejected and crucified. He uh, ascends into heaven for a time and says that he will return and restore the kingdom of God. So we have, again, we have an idyllic, idyllic setting at the beginning and at the end. We have a good guy, we have a bad guy, and the good guy wins. You know the story of the Bible. And uh, the, and the reason we want to <clears throat> keep that focus on the forest is because many people, when you ask them, well, what is the Bible about? I find that their answer is, it tells us how to be saved. It's about salvation. Or it's about Jesus Christ. Now, all of those things are true. All of those things are true. But why is there a need for salvation? And what is the role of Jesus Christ? You see, that fits into the bigger story of the Bible. So let's go through and trace that story a little bit, not looking at every verse in the Bible, of course, but in the beginning, when God created heavens and earth, he created man on the sixth day, and he was very, very special. And um, the narrative slows down to describe man in his role. <clears throat> and it says, God said, let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. Some people see in this address the Trinity, but God's saying that... Um, you know, theologians have talked for thousands of years, what does, it mean made, what does it mean to be made in man's image? And some have suggested things like, well, uh, like God is mind, will, and emotions, uh, so man is made up of component parts. Or like God is self-determining, man is self-determining. Or like God has a moral sense <clears throat> of, of uh, uh, morality, uh, so man has a sense of morality, of oughtness. Uh, and all these things have been postulated, and they may all be true, except for the Mormon version that says... Uh, God has a body like man has a body. Of course, we would reject that version of what it means to be made in his image. What does it mean? I found the best explanation from a Hebrew scholar I greatly admire named Eugene Merrill, who looked at the Hebrew words themselves and saw this in the language. Talking about the original Hebrew, he says the translation ought to be as our image. That is, man is not in the image of God, he is is the image of God. Now notice what he's saying. The text speaks not of what man is like, but of what he is to be and do. So man, as the image of God, was created to represent God himself as the sovereign of all creation. You see, we're not talking about what is man like, but why did, what did God create him to do and be? And he created them to be over, to rule over creation in God's stead. To be sovereign over creation as God's, some would say, theocratic administrator, representing God, or vice regent, one who represents a ruler. That was God's intention for mankind, not just to inhabit the earth and be like God, but to act in his place over, over a creation, okay, under his dominion. And so when we read the verses and go on, 
in verses 26 through 28, you see words like, let them have dominion over the fish and, and over the birds and over the cattle. You see, it strongly points to man's role as a theocratic administrator or vice regent over these aspects of creation, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then he says, he tells man to be multiplied, fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. His kingdom is to be subdued and then he's to have dominion over all things again. So when we emphasize those words, we clearly see in the creation narrative what God's purpose for Adam was. The first Adam was to be God's representative ruler over this earth, this creation. Psalm 8 has an interesting commentary on the role of man in verses 4 and 5. It reads like this, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him, man, a little lower than the angels. Now your Bible may read differently. Your Bible at least probably has a footnote next to that word angels, does it? And if you look at that footnote, it's suggesting that the word Elohim in the Hebrew language can be understood as God, because we know that Elohim is one of the ways God is addressed in the Old Testament. Frankly, I think that would be the better translation, since Psalm 8 is commenting about the role of man. He's, he's saying, what, what is role's, man's role, verse 4, that we, could, that we should even pay attention to him? What's his importance? Verse 5. He's been made a little lower than God. He's right under God as God's vice regent, as his theocratic administrator. What an important role God assigned to the first Adam and to us today. The problem is, of course, as you know, is that Satan deceived Adam into disobeying God at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God said, on the day that you eat of that tree, don't eat of it, but the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Adam and Eve ate of the tree. They did not drop over physically dead, but they were separated from God spiritually. So now there was sin as a barrier between God and man, and God had to pursue them in the garden and restore them and provide for them. And then he made promises to Adam and uh, the woman and the serpent, uh, speaking that they would be under a curse, the earth, the whole earth, the whole creation would be under a curse. And then he said to Satan that there will be enmity between you and the woman and between your seed, your descendants, um, Satan, and her seed, the godly line, and the capital S, which can be a collective noun, speaking of one or many, her descendants or her descendant. And here the singular is preferred because he says, he shall bruise your head. This seed will crush your head, Satan, but you will temporarily wound him. You will bruise his heel. So this is the first promise in Scripture that God's going to do something to restore what he began in Genesis chapter 1. And the rest of the Bible shows how this plays out. So, who's in charge now? Who's in charge now? Adam gave up his right to rule. He was usurped, and that left 
Satan to rule. And how do we know he's the ruler of this world? Well, one evidence is in Matthew chapter 4 when when uh, the devil took Jesus up on a high mountain and it says, showed him all the kingdoms of the world. Look, Jesus, there's the kingdom of Europe. There's the kingdoms of Asia. There's the future kingdom of uh, the United States, South America. Showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and said to him, all these things I will give, to if, give you if you fall down and worship me. Satan had the ability to promise Jesus Christ the kingdoms of the world if Jesus would only worship him, which of course he did not. That indicates that that Satan is the ruler of this world. You say, well, he's the ruler of the United States. Well, you know, there's a lot of good things about the United States, but uh, there are a lot of moral disasters. There are a lot of political disasters. We're spinning out of control in many areas. Satan is manipulating. Uh, And but for the prayers of God's people, we would be in really bad shape because we're living in hostile territory. How do we know that? 2 Corinthians 4.4 says that Satan, speaking of unbelievers, whose minds the God of this age, he's called, the God of this age has blinded. The God of this age, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that the light of the gospel should not shine upon them and save them. 1 John 5.9 says that the whole world lies under the sway of the evil one. The whole world is under his influence and his manipulative evil control. So Satan is in charge now, not mankind, and, and, uh, because of Adam's sin. Well, God began a, began a program then through Adam's godly line, which takes us through many important characters in the Old Testament, probably the primary one being Abraham. And he made with Abraham a covenant. In Genesis chapter 12, we have the seeds of that covenant. I will make you a great nation and bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abraham is going to become a great nation. A nation indicates that there's going to be a government, a place to govern, a land, which he does promise and even give the parameters for, and a leader. A nation has a king. God would be the leader of the early stages of this nation, but later they would choose an earthly king and then predict a future king. And of course, we're talking about Israel. Now, this covenant we can follow if we had the time right through the book of Genesis as it is reiterated to his son Isaac and his son Jacob. And, uh, and to Judah, he says something very interesting. As uh, Jacob is blessing his sons, he says to Judah, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Now, a scepter, of course, is a symbol of royal rule. So it's a kingly scepter symbol. Nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. Shiloh has the sense of the one to whom it belongs. In other words, Judah, the scepter is going to stay in your tribe until the one who comes along and to whom it belongs, and collects it. And to him, to that person, shall be the obedience of the people. This verse is helping us anticipate 
a coming king from the tribe of Judah. And we haven't even left the book of Genesis yet. And God is telling us that there is a coming king. He's going to be from the tribe of Judah. And as we go through the pages of the Old Testament, we see that narrowed down to the house of David. And God makes a covenant with David, an everlasting, again, the same thing. It's just an aspect of the Abrahamic covenant. It's everlasting, it's eternal, it's unconditional. It didn't depend on David's um, obedience. David did sin, but he didn't lose the covenant. God promised an everlasting covenant to him, and he said to him in 2 Samuel 7, 16, And your house, David, and your kingdom shall be established forever, before you, and your throne shall be established forever. Now, David was sitting on the throne of Israel at that time, and God was promising him a literal earthly throne in the future, forever, which would, of course, not be David himself sitting on it, but the son of David from David's lineage, Jesus Christ. And so the Davidic earthly throne was an was a literal throne over a literal kingdom. And we have to be careful to distinguish that from God's heavenly throne. We know that there is a heaven and God is seated on his throne and he is in sovereign control of all things. Revelation 3.21 helps us to see this distinction. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. God... uh, Jesus says, as I also overcame and sat with my father on his throne, okay, in heaven. But Jesus says that he has a different throne, and those who are rewarded for their faithfulness, he's writing to the churches in Revelation, will sit with me on my throne, my Davidic earthly throne. And so we make a distinction between the heavenly throne of God and his heavenly rule and the earthly kingdom where Jesus will rule as the son of David, the anticipated king. Now, we can go through the prophets and point to many, many prophecies. Uh, But, for example, Isaiah 9, 6 tells us that there's a child born, a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. He'll be a ruler. And he'll have magnificent names like Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, a royal name. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. It will be universal. And upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with justice from that time forth, even forever. So what do we see here? That Isaiah is telling us there is a coming Davidic king who's going to sit on a literal Davidic throne on the earth, which is going to be over all of the earth, and it's going to go on forever. Micah 5.2 tells us about this king being born in Bethlehem and, uh, and says, speaking to Bethlehem, out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler of Israel. Again, anticipating the coming king and his kingdom. Daniel has things to say too. Chapter 2, verse 44, for example. In the days of these kings, the, the kings that Daniel has been prophesying about in the vision uh, to King Nebuchadnezzar, The God of heaven shall set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. 
Now, have we seen that kingdom yet? No, we haven't seen that kingdom yet. Have we seen Jesus seated on David's throne yet? No, we haven't seen that. So these are things that we're looking forward to. Zechariah 9 adds more color, more color commentary to the coming of this king. Tells, telling Jerusalem to rejoice, your king is coming to you. And uh, he is just and having salvation, lowly riding on a donkey. <clears throat> this familiar passage uh, which predicted this aspect of Jesus' life. And uh, the last, at the end of the passage, he shall speak peace to the nations and his dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So this humble king coming on a donkey will indeed rule over Israel and over the earth. Well, when we come to the New Testament then, we see that Christ came to fulfill these covenants, including specifically the Davidic covenant. And here we read, uh, a, a real uh, parallel to the promise we just saw in 2 Samuel 7.16, by, announced by an angel who really knew his or her, I think it would be a his if angels have sex, is dressed as him, an angel who knew his theology. He says to Mary uh, that she, uh, do not be afraid, you found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and call his name Jesus, Yeshua, Savior. He shall be great and be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him, what? The same things God promised to David. The throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house, the dynasty of uh, the throne, uh, the house, uh, dynasty of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, of his kingdom, there will be no end. The same language that God spoke to David, reviewed by the angel in this little theology lesson to Mary. And she must have, it must have echoed in her mind the scriptural promises that she could read in 2 Samuel. So we come into the Gospels, and there we find that this promised king is presented to the people of Israel as their king. He tells them the kingdom of heaven is near. And what he meant literally is that it is at hand. It's right here in front of you if you would have it. And that kingdom announcement of the king and his coming kingdom was announced through the New Testament Gospels uh, by John the Baptist, by Jesus Christ himself, uh, by the 12 disciples, and then by the 70 disciples. There was a consistent theme that the king is coming with his kingdom. But you know the story of the Gospels. The king is rejected. Probably it... it, uh, um, peaks, climaxes in Matthew chapter 12, verses 24 through 28, where Christ's power was attributed to Satan. You remember that Jesus, they, they said, oh, he only does those miracles by the power of Satan. And that seemed to be a turning point because it confirmed the hardness of the hearts of these Pharisees. And, the, and another interesting thing is that after this event in Matthew 12, the kingdom is no longer described as near or present, or at hand. Because Israel has formally rejected their king. The nation has rejected their king. And then Christ is handed over for crucifixion with the expression, to Caesar we have no king but Caesar, in John 19. <clears throat> formally rejected, officially rejected by the nation, and crucified. 
the coming king, dies on the cross, but he rises again. He rises again, he ascends into heaven, and he promises to return, Acts chapter 1 tells us. But that leaves us in what we would call an interim age. We call it the church age, which is referred to in the Bible as the mystery, something not revealed in the Old Testament. The church where Jew and Gentile would be brought together for a time while Christ is absent until he returns and ends the church age. And that's where we find ourselves today. And because of the situation that we read in the Bible and the situation we see and know, we have to come to the conclusion that the church is not the kingdom of God. You see, there are many religious groups and theologies out there that say we're in the kingdom of God now. Some, Some of this would be called amillennialism. There's no literal kingdom. It's amillennial or non-millennial. There's no literal thousand-year kingdom. We're in the kingdom today. Christ is ruling in our hearts. He's ruling the world through us and all this kind of spiritual thing. And the way we get to that kind of interpretation is by spiritualizing the promises in the Old Testament and saying that they weren't to a a literal nation of Israel, but they were to the church, replacing Israel with the church, perhaps, In spiritualizing the promises, it wasn't talking about physical land and boundaries. It's talking about um, spiritual blessings. But we cannot hold to a literal, grammatical, common sense interpretation of the scriptures and come to the conclusion that the church has replaced Israel or that we are in the kingdom today. One thing we find out about the kingdom that's told to us in the book of Revelation is that Satan is bound. Do we live in a time where Satan is bound? Well, what was the news this morning? Another murder in Paris? Another cop killed somewhere? I don't know. It's just the same thing over and over again. Showing us that Satan really is in control. He really is manipulating. Evil dominates. And this is not the kingdom. If this is the kingdom, that's not such great news to me. I think you feel the same way. And then we go into the epistles, and there are many, many things we could look at in the epistles, but Colossians 1.13 is interesting. He has delivered us, Christ has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. Now, this verse would, would look like it's saying that we are in the kingdom, okay? And that's why I brought this verse up. But we have to be careful to make this distinction, that there is a universal kingdom of God in the sense that he is ruling comprehensively, eternally, and directly. And that kingdom has always been in existence. God's universal rule, his universal cosmic rule has always been in existence. But when we talk about the kingdom of God on earth, or the theocratic kingdom, we're talking about something that's yet future. It's an earthly kingdom. God is ruling it indirectly through Uh, Jesus and us, and um, it's conditioned on us believing in him. So Colossians, I think, some people will think that looks, is speaking, even in the present tense, is speaking of a future kingdom, but I tend to think that's talking about, let's go back to it, Jesus has delivered us into this universal rule of God. We are citizens of heaven 
and he is our he is our ruler now in the universal sense but it is not saying that we are in a literal kingdom on earth yet that is still anticipated we go through the epistles with language that speaks of this uh, the church age coming to an end with a time of tribulation and it takes us to the book of revelation that reveals the things about the future in great detail and um, we see that the earthly authority is transferred from Satan to Jesus Christ. For example, in Revelation eleven fifteen, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. This is talking about his earthly kingdom rule. And that will be a 1,000 year, again, if we take it, Literally, grammatically, common sense. Um, I think a thousand years is repeated five times here in Revelation 20. A thousand year kingdoms where Jesus will rule and we who believe in him will rule with him. To the extent that we are faithful, we will have more uh, participation in that kingdom. Revelation 20, I saw an angel coming down from heaven and having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. So obviously Satan is not bound today. He's still deceiving the nations. This is talking about the future thousand-year period where Satan will be bound. But notice it also says he will be released at the end of that thousand years, just for a little while. And you say, well, why does God do that? Why doesn't God just wipe him out while he has a chance? He has him in prison. I think there's an important reason for that that we'll come to and explain in a minute. Christ's eternal rule, Revelation chapter 22, verses 3, as the book comes to an end, it says there shall be no more curse, Remember the curse in Genesis chapter 1? Now the story has come full circle. Now what was the conflict that began in Genesis is being resolved. There will be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. Those who have believed in him and followed him will serve him, and they shall reign forever and ever. So mankind, that's you and me, who failed in the first Adam, will rule the earth through the last Adam. Yes, Jesus is the king, but we need to be careful to see that we as humans are also fulfilling God's original purpose in the story for us. We will rule the earth as he intended. And so the curse is reversed. There'll be no more curse, it says. No more curse. So the story is about a coming king and his kingdom. The king is from the, we could say many things, but here's a summary. He's from the tribe of Judah. He's from the line of David. He was presented to Israel. He was rejected by Israel. He ascends into heaven and says, I will return. 
and he does come again. Uh, he says he's coming again, and the book of Revelation describes that coming in great detail where he will come and establish his kingdom forever. What's the story of the Bible? It's a story of a kingdom. It's a story about what God is doing. Here's how I would summarize it. I'm not saying that this statement is perfect, but I think it kind of says it. It says it all of what we want to say about the Bible's story. It's about God working. God is working. The Bible has to start with a focus on God and what he is doing. And he's working to reestablish his rule. Why does he need to reestablish his rule over creation? Because the first Adam lost that right and the ability to rule. And God's purpose for man was thwarted by Satan. So God has to reestablish that rule over all of creation. But it's through man, not apart from man. It's going to be through man, the last Adam, and we who are in him. You see, that's one of the reasons that the humanity of Jesus Christ is so important. Jesus Christ was fully man, and he's also fully God. He had to be fully God so that he could, he could uh, make an eternal sacrifice for us and rule forever and resist temptation. All the things that man could not do, but he was fully man. And the title he preferred for himself above all others in the Gospels is Son of Man. Why? Why did Jesus prefer that title? Because he was saying, I'm the last Adam. I represent you. I'm here to fulfill God's purpose for you who were made in his image to rule over all of creation. And I, as the last Adam, am going to be able to do that because he was also fully God. And so the Bible is about God reestablishing his rule over creation through man, but that means the coming king through Jesus, not apart from Jesus, but through Jesus and those who are in him the coming king and his kingdom. And so that kingdom that was lost by Adam, the sovereign uh, rule of God and his, his uh, vice regency over creation is restored in Jesus Christ. When you think about the Bible story, it's easy to, easy to see why the kingdom is not present today. Uh, it, as I said, it would require spiritualizing a lot of the promises in the Old Testament that talk about a literal physical kingdom coming and a literal throne of David. And then secondly, we've said we know that Satan is still very active, but we know from the Bible in the thousand-year period Satan's going to be bound for a thousand years. And of course, Jesus is not sitting today on David's throne. The only way to get Jesus sitting on David's throne is to spiritualize the, those promises in the Old Testament. God is seated on his throne in heaven. The Davidic throne is not yet established on earth, but it will be in Zion in the end times. Why is a kingdom necessary to resolve the story that we began in Genesis? Let me just say and review several reasons. First of all, it completes the story begun in Genesis. The story would find no resolution if in some way, perhaps, God established a kingdom somewhere else instead of the earth. If he never redeemed mankind to his original purpose and never able to rule through man, the story wouldn't really resolve. 
But God resolves the story here on earth the way he originally intended it. Secondly, it vindicates God. God triumphs in the same area where he was seemingly defeated, earth. Earth was the battleground. Earth was the spiritual battleground. This is where the battle was fought. And this is where the battle must end. And God is vindicated by his earthly rule in the coming kingdom, in the arena where he lost that rule. Third, it realizes God's purpose for creation. His purpose was for creation was to thrive and multiply and for mankind to be ruling over that creation, as we will one day through the man, Jesus Christ, the King, Jesus Christ. And it fulfills God's purpose for man. God intended you and me to be rulers over this earthly kingdom, and we will through Jesus Christ our king. And so we're not assigned to float in some heavenly uh, ether, but the, uh, in some kind of eternal existence. That wouldn't resolve God's purpose for man at the beginning where he was created and told to rule over all the earth as God's image. The only way that will be accomplished is in a physical, literal kingdom here on earth. It also fulfills God's many covenant promises, the promises to Abraham and reiterated through the Davidic covenant, the new covenant, speak about physical land and property and boundaries and kings that can only be fulfilled literally by a literal kingdom. And it shows that man is the problem. You see, one of the reasons I think that the kingdom is for a thousand years with Satan locked up is to show that the real problem is not uh, not the devil, but it's the weakness of mankind. It's not society, because during that thousand-year period, there's going to be a perfect society, right? There's going to be a perfect ruler, right? But some of those who have come from the tribulation period into the kingdom, evidently their children, are, are going to show that there's still sin in their hearts. And so at the end of the thousand years, when Satan is released, they're going to rebel against God. God will immediately squash that rebellion. Why does God allow that to happen? He's showing it. He's simply showing us that we can't blame our condition on society. We can't even blame it on the devil. The problem is humankind, mankind needs to be redeemed and changed from the inside out into a follower of Christ. And then it allows, seventh, it allows God to reward faithful believers. I think one of the purposes of the millennial kingdom and the eternal state is God can reward those who have been faithful to him. And it makes what we do today count for tomorrow, doesn't it? Jesus talks about returning at his return, and he will bring his rewards with him in Revelation chapter 22. And this should motivate us to a life of faithfulness here on earth, because we know that whatever we do today will make a difference for tomorrow. So some conclusions, applications. First of all, the Bible is not just a story about personal salvation. You know, that's looking at some of the trees in the forest. But the question really is, why does God save us? Yes, it presents salvation, but that's not all the Bible is about. It's not just a book that tells us how to be saved. Why are we saved? 
What are we saved to? What are we saved for? Salvation is not just about going to heaven, which is often our emphasis, isn't it? You know, we're going to get saved, we're going to go to heaven. Well, do you know that heaven's a temporary place? That the kingdom and God's eternal earthly kingdom is our permanent home, not heaven? You may die, die and go to heaven, but it could be for a brief time until the Lord returns and sets up his kingdom. So the Bible's not just talking about, and salvation is not just talking about going to heaven. It's about entering into the kingdom of God in the future. Third, we are part of God's plan for the world. That should make us, uh, make us have a feeling of significance, that God has a plan for us in his creation and in his world. It is bigger than you and me. It is bigger than even our salvation. God is using us, I assume mostly us Gentiles in this, in this interim period, gathering in Gentiles, who will be part of his worldwide program when he sets up his throne in Israel. So what are we to be, to do, what are we to be doing today? We are to populate and prepare people for the kingdom. That's what we would call the Great Commission. Go, make disciples of all nations. Populate the kingdom of God. Teaching them to observe all things. Prepare them for the kingdom of God. In this interim time before the, period, before the kingdom and the king returns, we have an opportunity to share the gospel with the nations of the world. That's what I've been trying to do through Grace Life, and perhaps you've been doing it through other mission activity. I've already been to three countries, four countries this year, and we'll go to three more countries this summer. Teaching pastors how to share the gospel clearly so that they can go to their congregations and their communities to populate this kingdom. And there we will be with people from every tribe, nation, tongue, language, people that were gathered in while God gave us the opportunity. Not only gather them in, but prepare them, teach them so that they can teach others. And then our last point is that we should prepare ourselves for kingdom living. For us who have believed in Jesus Christ as Savior, we have a guidebook that tells us what kingdom principles are. The Sermon on the Mount tells us kingdom morality. And the rest of the New Testament and Old Testament tells us the principles of morality that, God, that pleases God and how we can live a life to please him. If we live that kind of life, we'll be preparing ourselves for eternity in the kingdom of God. But the most important question for any who are not sure about their eternity is what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He says, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so the question for you would be, are you born again? And how are we born again? He goes on to tell us in simple words, John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's through faith and God's provided Deliverer, God's provided Savior, who crushed the work of Satan spiritually and will physically. It's by having faith in Jesus Christ as Savior, not by our own efforts, not by works, but simply believing in God's promise of eternal life. Believing in the one who died on the cross and rose again, who's coming to set up his kingdom, 
we are born again and can enter that kingdom. Let's have a word of prayer, and I hope you visit our table and look at some of our resources uh, in the breaks. But Lord, I want to thank you for the opportunity to share about what you are doing today and will do in the future. It encourages our hearts, not just to know that we'll be there, but we will be there significantly, fulfilling the original purposes you had for mankind, ruling with Jesus rewarded for our faithfulness. But Father, my heart is heavy for anyone who has doubts about their salvation today or doubts about their future in eternity. May they know that Jesus has provided as a sacrifice for their sins and risen from the dead to give them eternal life. And may they believe that and receive that eternal life today, that they can rejoice forever in the kingdom of God with us and with Jesus, our King. Thank you for this time. Thank you for this morning. We ask your blessings on the speakers who come the rest of the day. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources, or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace.org at gracelife.org. See you next time.